It's the Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, where we're back at Chelmsford for the second time in quick succession, this time to record a feature interview with the great Graham Gooch, Jeff. Uh, it's an interview we've been wanting to do for quite a long time, and uh, it, it's been made possible because we're, of course, working with the Advanced Hair Studio at the moment. Graham Gooch has been working with the Advanced Hair Studio for the better part of three decades, so it all tied in nicely. Well, a lot of what we found when we were researching the lifetime's career of Graham Gooch is that it's all about long periods of time, been playing at Essex for <laughs> about 50 years. 55 you know, years since he first rocked up here, yes. <laughs> involved with the team still to this day and involved with advanced hair for nearly 30 years. He said 20, 27 years since wow. he, he first uh, donned the, the, it's not even a rug, you know, got the, the upstairs reupholstered properly. And I, and I can tell you, having sat on the angle where we were doing the interview, spoiler, we've already done it, I was sitting just above him looking down a bit. It's a lovely head of hair. Mm-hmm. It's, he's, uh, they've done a great job in, in repairing uh, up top for him. So advancedhairstudio.com forward slash final word is the offer code to get involved with them through us. 15% discount. More than a million people have been through the doors in the last 30 years. So the, the span of time that Gucci's been involved with them at Advanced Hair. And of course, there is a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you've been thinking about it, maybe this will be the prompt advancedhairstudio.com forward slash final word all you need to do is put your details in for 15% off and one of their specialists will get straight in touch uh, we are currently sitting in the nets having this conversation I noticed there's a large sign saying no unauthorised use of the nets we have not been authorised to use the nets we could be thrown out at any minute but we're not wearing spikes that's the important thing no spikes in the nets no that's right we've got the right shoes on I, I should say by the way I didn't get this into the interview but it's uh, been brought to my attention that Graham Gooch out of his own pocket still spends a lot of money on the Essex youth system. By that I mean he makes a lot of this possible. So maybe it's fitting that we're Mm. in the nets here where the Essex kids do as he did so many years ago when he was coming through the system, be it here at Chelmsford or or at Leighton as well, where he he grew up. As he says, he's a proper Essex lifer. He's given an awful lot to the game and he gave a lot to us in our long interview with him. So pat up, as he did so often, and enjoy the show. Uh, This is Graham Gooch on The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Thanks to the Advanced Hair Studio, the world leaders in hair restoration. Who better to have with us here uh, than the man who has spent the better part of half a century roaming this field behind you? It's Graham Gooch. G'day, Graham. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's great to be here, and especially at the Cloud County ground here. I first played here in 1967 <laughs> for Waltham Forest Schools versus Mid-Essex <laughs> Schools. That's scary, isn't it? 1967. Wow, so like a 55-year association wow. with this yeah, ground. It's a long and time. You turned 69 this week, of course, as well, so nearing another milestone birthday. And I, do you still get the same buzz when you walk through the gates behind us here? I mean, Essex are one day into a championship fixture against Somerset. They had a good day yesterday. You still get that sort of spring in your step when you're on the way to the ground? Yeah, I, th- I think as a, as, a, as a sportsman, you know, you play the game, you watch the game, you coach people, like in my, and, and you're on the periphery now, but you still love the game, really. You love the game, and, and, and that's what drives you forward, watching other people, you know, trying to help them, still involved in the sort of organisation behind the scenes here at Essex, and being a player for 25 years or so. Yeah, I, I, I think we, I feel very privileged to be involved as a professional sportsman an ex-professional sportsman because when I when I left school my father Alf he insisted I did a four-year apprenticeship in engineering <laughs> so I know what a proper job's like and that's why I always feel you know very honoured to 
been able to you know make a living and have a, a a wonderful life playing sport and meeting a load of you know really good people great cricketers uh, you know all around the world west indies australia new zealand india and pakistan you know i feel very lucky uh, before we get into the interview proper pop quiz uh, today is the 26th of july why is that date significant don't know, Rolling Stones? Don't know. <laughs> sort of. In cricketing terms, at Lords, 32 years ago today, you made your triple century. Oh, I didn't even know that. <laughs> <laughs> I said it was a pop quiz question yeah, without I, I notice. Know. I, 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 I don't know. Well, Mick Jagger's a big cricket fan. I know that. <laughs> yep. Well, we, we didn't know it either until we were looking through the notes yesterday and we thought, hang on a minute, this is, uh, this is coming on a fortuitous date. Well, look, you know, it, it, it was a great game because England won the game. There was centuries from other people. Um, obviously, it's, it's a special match for me because I think generally as a cricketer, you know, a batsman or a run maker, as I like to call them, because anyone can bat, but can you make runs? That's the important thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, to, to have the opportunity to get a triple century doesn't come round very often. The time, the time factor sure, yeah. in a match. You know, you very rarely be able to go on and get that sort of score because the, you declare or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it turned out well for us. So, as a run maker at heart, uh, Sam Northeast four ten not out. Should he have gone for the five hundred? Absolutely. Why not? I mean, when I got my three three three, I I I sort of was. As soon as I got 300, we wanted to declare we were 600. And I came into the dressing room after running out of petrol, really. And Mickey Stewart, our manager, Alex Stewart's father, said to me, he said to me, what are you doing getting out? I said, sorry, Mickey. I said, I run out of gas, mate. <laughs> you know, he said, you should have gone on and beaten um, Gary Sober's record, which was 365 then. And I can honestly say now, I never even thought of that until he mentioned it in the dressing room. <laughs> but on reflection... If I didn't know, if he'd sent a message out to me, I might have tried to do that. Actually, mm-hmm. I wonder whether Manos Prabaka did you a favour by bowling you on three three three. It's such a striking number, and let's forget about Bradman three three four for a moment here. I mean, Gooch three three three. It rolls off the tongue. It's probably served you quite well across the journey in terms of the bats you sold and all the rest. Yeah, I think so. Yes, <laughs> it's a sort of a number that sticks there. I have a wine now called three thirty three <laughs> as well, so uh, I've milked it to the end, so to speak. You and you and Chris Gale could do the cross promotion, you know, uh, the the three 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 pair up. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, but, I mean, but maybe maybe it's lucky you got out because you had a little bit more gas in the tank in the second innings because you get to back up with the other hundred, the four fifty six in the match. No yeah, one's ever done well, better I, than that. I, uh, when when we didn't make them follow on, I was spitting feathers because <laughs> I thought I caught uh, Kapil Dev off Angus Fraser at second slip, um, Dicky Bird and Nigel Plews with the umpires. Uh, they couldn't. They weren't convinced it carries. There was no replays then. Of course, Kapil Dev went on to hit um, Eddie Hemmings for four yes. consecutive sixes and save the follow-on by one run first ball we bowled a guy called Hawani the leg spinner we got him out and then when I went in for the second innings I was not a happy bunny I'm telling you so I went in there you know played with vengeance because we couldn't make them follow on I mentioned we're in, in the heart of Essex here born in Whips Cross Hospital it seems like everybody at this club is born at Whips Cross or somewhere in Whips Cross you've got half your county team at the moment but I mean it's true to say that you, you're a you're an Essex lifer I mean you've lived around here throughout you've, you've been at the, the county ground throughout uh, grew up in it was Leighton wasn't it where you, where you spent your formative years so it means a lot I, to you I, this part of the world. I was brought up in Leightonstone, uh, which is about a mile and a half from the, what was then the Leighton County Ground, where we yep. played county cricket. I played in the last game there in 1977. And basically, I live at 
uh, just up the road at Ingatestone. So I've moved from Leightonstone to Chapel Heath, which is probably about six, seven miles, then to Gidea Park, another four or five miles, then to Shenfield, and now where I am. So I am an Essex man, and I have no intention of ever moving from Essex. <laughs> so Norlington School you went to and Leighton High School, I looked them up. They both got bombed during World War Two, so I don't know if that's an omen or not. But, you know, you're born in 53, so you're growing up in those pretty immediate post-war years. Mm. What's it like that period of time to, to be a, a kid growing up? Uh, well, I was very lucky. Mum and Dad were very loving uh, family, my sister, and uh, what, what I do remember, people ask me, how did you get into cricket and all that sort of stuff? Well, I played football and cricket in those days, and Dad used to play for a team called East Ham Corinthians in East London, and every Sunday, I used to go with my sister and my mum and dad, they'd take a picnic, uh, I don't think you see that so much in club cricket these days, <laughs> mm. they'd take a picnic, they'd sit there, you know, Dad would play, I would pester the other players to throw me balls, so... I have been um, indoctrinated into cricket since I jumped out of the pram, so to speak. I don't know anything else. He taught me how to play, and uh, I didn't have any formal coaching until I was about 13, right. until I went to the Ilford Cricket School. And, and then within a couple of years, as you say, you, you were playing out here in those sort of early games when you were a teenager. I mean, you're in the first class setup by the time you're 19. It seems like that was what you were born to yeah, do. Yeah, well, I... I, I I'm, I was picked as, um, they tried to make me into a wicketkeeper batsman. I used to bowl a bit. I used to do a bit of everything, but they tried to make me into a wicketkeeper batsman. And I, and I made my debut for the second eleven in Essex at, a, at Northampton County Ground. It was like a test ground to me, you know, going to a county mm. ground as opposed to the local mm. park where we used to play. And, and I was really annoyed, actually. I was going to say another word, but I won't say it on here. You're very um, welcome to say whatever you want on here. <laughs> <laughs> on, well, pissed, on this off, show, pissed off come to mind. <laughs> on this show, we have free reign. We, okay, we, we okay. don't, we don't well, go on the radio. I, so. I was very pissed off because um, I was a 15-year-old. The captain of the second team was an amateur captain because we couldn't afford to have, like, you know, there wasn't 11 professionals. Mm. He picked me up. He was a, a local businessman. Picked me up in his Rolls Royce. This is absolutely true. <laughs> and took me in my little cricket bag. You know those little cricket bags? Those little, like, cloth cricket bags? You yeah. put your bat down the side, the side of it. yeah. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because all the players now, you know, big coffin things they have and put all their kit on it. Anyway, he picked me up, took me to the game, and uh, I saw the team sheet, and I was batting number 11. And that's the only time Oof. I think I've ever batted number 11. <laughs> I was really pissed off because I thought I should have been batting number 10 before, before this clubby bowler who was playing for us. <laughs> but uh, that was my first experience of Essex, really. And then... Um, did you get a hit? I don't think I did, no. Never batted. Rude. And then um, after that, I left school. Father Alf insisted I went into engineering, did a four-year apprenticeship. This is absolutely true. Mm. And the day I qualified is the day I signed professional for Essex. Right, <laughs> as, you're, as you're doing so. And now I guess it's not long on from that that you're a speculative pick, shall we say, for your first test match. Sure, you've made 1,000 runs in 75, but you're not sort of banging your door down for selection. They see something in you, and they pop you up against Ian Chappell's Australians. So that, that's Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, uh, my favourite line is, it's uh, very convenient to have your first test score in your surname. True enough, <laughs> yes. <laughs> OK, so uh, you're, you're dead right. What happened was, I mean... England got a kick in from Lillian Thompson, the, mm. the, the, your, the Australian summer before. Mm. You know, that they were the fearsome fast bowling attack and they just ripped England apart. So when we came back, there was, as there always is in any team, any country, when things go wrong, there's call for change. Um, I think that first test for me, the, the interesting thing I, I think is that 
I don't know about you guys, and I don't know about guys, you know, all around the world. We used to have this little game in the UK called How's That Cricket, okay? Mm-hmm. How's That Cricket was you have, you have to have a scorebook, you had a little roller for, for runs and wickets, and you used to roll these things, and then you put the score down, okay? So previously, in maybe five, seven or eight years before this, all the names I used to put down in the England side, Edrich, Amos, Fletcher, Greg, Knott, Underwood, mm-hmm. Snow, were all the people I made my test debut with. <laughs> wow. <laughs> all of wow. them. Pretty much all of them. So were you overawed at the uh, start? I, I did feel a little bit of a fish out of water because they were pretty much all the team. There was no, there, there was no um, rookies there in that team. They were all seasoned players. I was the only new boy and mm-hmm. it didn't go well. But this, so how do you how do you cope with that as a young fella? You, you the team gets pumped by an innings. You make a pair. How do you come away from that and think? You know, do you think that's it? It's, um, it's never going to happen again. Well, I mean, I I, I, I would have been very depressed. I can't really remember. But you know, look, I I I always say to players now, you know, when being a coach or a senior player, when I was playing, is look. Every player, your Don Bradmans, your Sassin Tendulkers, your Steve Wars, your Mark Wars. Alistair Cook, who plays here now, everyone makes noughts, right? Everyone makes low scores. The key is, is that when you get in, you get to 10, 15, 20, 30. You don't make scores like that. Mm. When you get in, you mm. get a big score. Because you still get your noughts, you still get your fives, your tens, before you, when you're vulnerable. But when you get in to get 50, make it into 100. Make it into 150. Don't get those middling scores. Mm. So, you know... When you have three balls in the first innings, caught down the leg side off a of, off of Max Walker and then caught Marshbold Thompson um, in the second innings. On, mm. I, I, I don't know whether you guys remember. It's an uncovered pitch. Yeah, Do you remember yeah. that? So Australia, we put Australia in. And of course, Mike Dennis, who, who I opened the batting with here later on, he came to Essex from Kemp. Okay, so in those days, on an uncovered pitch at the start, if you won the toss 99.9 times, you know, out of 100, you'd bat first. Whatever the pitch looked like, you would bat first. Because if you bat, then it rains, the pitch gets wet. Sure. It's a bit of a lottery. You don't know what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. We had Australia 150-odd for five. I think Rod Marsh was batting. I remember they changed the ball. And and, and in those days, I mean, it wasn't as technical like a big box of balls they have now. They had to take another ball over to the nets and bang it in a bit. Came back. (laughs) And Rod Marsh, this is absolutely true, Rod Marsh, great bloke. I really miss him. It's so sad Mm. what happened to him and to Shane, obviously, recently. First ball, I think he was he was caught not bowl snow after this break. As he went off at Edgbaston, they used to have this glass-fronted, like what I call a conservatory on the front of the pavilion. He put his bat, he threw his bat straight through the glass window door like Jesus. that. Yeah. Anyway, that's I, I one of the th- memories of this first match. Um, Imagine anyway, so doing I, that today. I think, yeah. I think Australia got 300-odd. Uh, Ross Edwards got 90, if I remember. Mm. Anyway, w- I think it rained on the whole Saturday. So when we came to bat, we batted on a wet wicket. I think we got bowled out for 100 and 160. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, 101 and 173. That's right. I can tell you. Yeah, was, I mean, we, we were like, it's not a complaint. It's just that's just a luck of the draw. So I could say blame Mike Dines for not batting first, but mm-hmm. it might be a different story. But that's life, isn't it? Sol- solve this scorecard curiosity for me. It says that you faced three balls from Max Walker. Yeah. And you were batting for one minute. How did he bowl three balls in one minute? <laughs> I don't know. Or did the scorer doze off? No, I don't know. I was caught down the leg side. Of course, 
Cool and your face walking off. I've seen that clip before. You you are devastated walking well, off. As you would down be. The as you would side be. For is the worst yeah. dismissal for a batsman, you know, because it's not particularly good ball. You know, you follow the ball. I, what I do remember in the second innings, you know, is that Tomo bowled me a full toss outside off stump and I think I let it go mm. and I was thinking why did I do that you know <laughs> and then I got a ball that jumped off this wicket and if you see the, the that was a decent ball mm, yep. but I mean look that's that's the game isn't it so that first series you play the, the next test yes. as well so you get two tests uh, I was thinking at least you get out to Walker Thompson Mallet and Lily so at least nobody had you under their spell you were nobody's bunny after that first no it's a change of captain though weren't there yeah <laughs> Tony Gregg was... Yes. Mike Dinesh resigned. Tony Gregg. And I, I don't think Greggy fancied me as a player, if mm. you see what I mean. So I went out the side, which was disappointing, but I suppose fair enough. And then I, I, had, to wait, I had to wait three years to come back into the side. Did, did you have the heavy bat straight away? I was watching the, the clip of you playing initially. It's hard to detect from watching. Like, it doesn't look like a huge piece of willow. You were known for that later in your career, carrying around a three-pound... No, it would have been more conventional then because I I used to stand then in the conventional manner. It was only in 1979 with the advent of of technology that I changed my stance to the Ah. upright stance. Hmm. And that all came about because I went on my first tour to Australia in 1978-9. I was opening the batting then. Uh, That was a series where we won 5-1, but most of the best Australian players were playing in Kerry Packer, although we had a lot of players in, in the mm. Kerry Packer circus as well. And since I'm sitting here at the ground, the players behind me can thank Kerry Packer for what they do now. Mm. The way he changed the game. White ball, coloured clothes, lights, all those things. So they, they are, all the cricketers owe a great you know, debt to Kerry Packer, in my opinion, because it wouldn't have changed. And I changed my stance because... My then wife Brenda's uh, aunt had this new, like, um, Philips video recorder, okay? Because you never saw yourself in telly on those days. Mm. You know, you might see the odd clip on, on a highlights program. But right. anyway, so she showed me these videos she recorded of the highlights from Australia. And I, and I just wasn't happy with the way I was standing and everything. And, uh, uh, you know, so I changed my stance to the upright stance. And that was a big game changer for me. That, that is incredible. So your career gets changed by VHS, basically. It revolutionized. No, before VHS. Right. These are, this is before VHS. So you had, after these Philips tapes, yep. big tapes, there was VHS and then Betamax as yep. well. Mm-hmm. They were directly afterwards. Yep. But it was the advent, advent of a video right. recorder. Seeing yourself on telly was the forerunner to all the analyst systems <laughs> they have now. So, so the two things you were known for with your batting, well, not the only two, but in terms of... Uh, the iconography, the huge bat and the upright yeah. stance holding the bat up, they're linked to each other mm. and they start after you, well, you're three years into your international career. Yeah, so going back to your original thing about my first test, that would have been more conventional sure. size bat. When I joined Duncan Fernley as a bat maker, he was having bigger bits of wood and heavier bats and with the upright stance and, and pre- predominantly looking to drive the ball, you know, I wasn't much of a cutter. I used to hook, hook and pull the ball, but you know, the heavy bat made sort of sense. You know, and it's all about the pickup. And of course, when people say to you, you know, what's the advantage of heavy bat? Well, the one advantage is with a, a light bat, you have to middle the ball. Mm. With a heavy bat, you, it's a bit like the golf technology. If you, if you hit it off centre, doesn't matter. Yep. It might not feel great. 
but it still goes. It's still going to work. It right. still works for you. Sounds okay. like your philosophy generally. You said before, it's just about anyone can be a, a batsman. It's about being a run maker. You sort of uh, made that calculation that, yeah, it may not be convenient and carrying a heavier bat around, but it's effective and therefore it's for you. Well, you did... You, it's part kind of in of keeping life, with that. Part of any part of life, as a, as a cricketer, as a batsman, as a doing what you guys do, is working out and knowing what you can do and what you can't do. Mm. Right? Um, there's a great example: a guy who, who got a few runs at the back of us got a hundred on debut, hundred on his last test. Alistair Cook, and he always knew from a young age what his limitations were, how he could play, and how he could score runs. And he applied that. Now, a lot of players only learn that as they go on. Some never mm. learn it, you know. You know, what, what they're good at, what they're not good at, and stick to that sort of plan, mm. you know. And how many players, as, as, as we said, you, everyone gets noughts and gets out early, yep. but you've got to go on and make those big scores. But how many players don't learn? They get to 20, get to 30, they relax, they feel like they're in, they feel like it's all good. Suddenly, they get themselves out on 42, mm. you know. Well, that's not going to win your game. It's a daddy hundred that's going to win your game, and that's over 150. So you're you're developing your game at this point because you're out of the test team, like you say, but you come into England's one-day team and you're very prominent there. You play the World Cup in 79. Mm. Uh, you make that hundred in Essex's breakthrough title, yeah. that, that limited overs title, and it's like you've got to learn how to play this new format as it's being invented, basically. And you go all the way to the other end of the career, you end up as the scorer of the most list A runs in history. More, more than 22,000 runs you made in list A cricket. No one's ever made that many. So I wonder if that's partly to do with it, that you, you don't get that opportunity you want at test level in those first few years, but while you're out of the team, you have to become another player. You have to become a limited overs player. Yeah, I think I... Think I OK, so I was out of the test team. I played a few one-day internationals in 76 the year after. I didn't make the tour to India, not selected. And then I started to open the batting. And then, like everyone's life, you have... I, I'm a big believer in evolving yourself. So I had to make changes. So I, not only to the technique, but also to the... how you think about yourself, right? How you, how you organise and manage yourself. I.e., for me, I had to be fitter, stronger, more alert. I had to train. That's when I started training, running. I used to be noted for it. I used to go over the top a lot of the time in training. But, you know, if you're fitter, stronger, generally means you're a better player. So, and in those days, there was no organised, uh, you, you know, um, S&C coach, you know, strength and conditioning mm. coaches or anything like that. You had to do it yourself. You know, I'm sure Dennis Lilly got himself fit after he had his back operation. You know, he was a great one for training. You know, I saw Bob Willis on my first tour, you know, running and training. And, you know, you, 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 and you own your own career, don't you? You own it mm. yourself and, and you've got to drive it. People on the periphery, your coaches, your mentors, all these people can help you. But at the end of the day, you know, you do it sometimes by yourself, for yourself. Mm. And um, so the fitness aspect came into it. That helped me concentrate better. And, and, and as I you know, do lecturing for sportsmen now, doing one tomorrow, attitude is number one. Second one, technical ability. Third one, knowledge. And the fourth one for a run maker is concentration, right? Because if you can't concentrate, you can't make runs. And I always say, think of it like this. Why is making runs like a downhill skier or a Formula One racing driver? And I say, one mistake 
end of your day. Mm. 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 And, and I suppose you, you become really well known for that intense concentration, churning out run after run, as Jeff pointed to before, whether it's white ball, red ball, limited overs, first class cricket, playing for England, all the rest of it. I guess by contrast, the more freewheeling attitude towards cricket, uh, one Ian Botham, and when you come back into the test team in 78, 79, this is Ian Botham 101, isn't it? This is the fun bit. This is when he's bowling you know, 90 mile an hour, making runs for laughs, breaking all the records. Your recollections of Botham version 1.0? Yeah, I mean, just quickly about the batting, you know, when you finish batting, when you're out, what do you do? Mm. You go sit down and you watch someone else bat. <laughs> and I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't come to the ground to watch someone else bat. So you're right, Ian Botham at that time was in his pomp, okay? And, and like, like a, a lot of all-rounders, you know, Ian's um, skill levels were high his confidence was high his self-belief was unbelievable i mean i I wasn't born with a lot of self-belief i had to convince myself in the end that you're going to be successful but people like him people like warned shane warned they had a lot of self-belief you know and and ian ian was one of those cricketers that would give everything with the ball if it didn't work he'd try and come off with the bat you know so he had two strings to the bow which, you know, made it easier for him, if you see what I mean. Um, mm. You know, if you've got one thing, it's a little bit more pressure. But, you know, he was a match winner and, you know, he was box office, wasn't he? He's, yeah. he's a box office cricketer. Like Shane Warne was a box office cricketer. There are some players like that. Mm. It's more of a gradual build for you when you come back into the test team in 78. You're replacing Barry Wood, who's in and out of the side. You make 50 then. You make 91 not out against New Zealand in the series after that. Uh, you go to Australia where you don't have a prolific tour, but no. you make 74 in that last test match mm. at Sydney and help set up the win there. Did, did that innings, did you feel like your spot might be on the line if you didn't make that score in Sydney, the last test of that? That yeah, absolutely, because my, my long-time mentor, Doug Insole, who was chairman here at Essex until he died uh, five years ago. Pavilion uh, named after him, just yeah, well, to your right. President. Yeah. He was my cricketing guardian throughout my life. Right. He was manager of that tour, and, you know, he said to me, you know, this is, this is a big match for you, you know, and, and I managed to get 70-odd, and that probably helped me retain my place for the following season, the seven, and that's the, that's the season I said when I made mm. the change to the technique. Right. And that was the big game changer, the technique change for me. Right. You know? and, and it does flow from there because you, yeah. you come back to England, make a couple of big half centuries in that following season. You play that one-off match uh, against Australia in uh, the what, the one at the MCG where you make 99 and 51 in Yeah, in run yourself out on 99. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> it happens. Um, you still think about that a bit, it seems. <laughs> I think you've got to because, you know, run makers dealing... I mean, I, would, I didn't think of it as run making then. I just, you know, thought it was batting, you know. Because in my early days, I would say I had talent but little structure. And in the period you're referring to, mm. that's when I started to think about structure. You okay. know, the things we're talking about, you know. Um, but running yourself out, and I remember it now as clear as day. I think it was, uh, I'm not sure who's bowling, Lenny Pascoe, it might have been. Just played it down the wicket. And, of course, you make that decision as a batsman to run. And then, of course, after a couple of steps, I think it was Kim Hughes came round, And you know, you know... This is a cock up here. <laughs> if he hits, I'm struggling. And he just, you know, he, he flicked it from mid on or whatever. And I, I was out by a couple of yards, I reckon. Yeah. And it wasn't, I mean, you weren't far away though. I mean, it, it does take you five years to get your first ton, but it's against the Windies. 
It's at yeah. Lords. You end up making 20 of those tonnes and you have a great record against the Windies and, and we'll come to that in a bit. But the relief of finally reaching that threshold. We've heard other cricketers talk about if it takes a while to get to 100, they wonder whether one might never come. How was that experience for you yeah, finally getting yeah, there? Yeah, it took a long time. You know, um, the break from the first test, the, the, the change in position in the batting order, you know, playing well and but not being able to get over that line. Yeah, it, it's what batsmen deal in hundreds, really, because, you know, hundreds change matches, mm. helps your side put them in, in possibly with an opportunity, only an opportunity of winning a match. And, you know, 40s and 50s don't count. And I had a great mentor in that period, the great Kenny Barrington, right. who was, you know, one of England's greatest players, was our assistant manager. We didn't have a coach in them days. So mm. he just had a assistant manager, like a mentor sort of guy. And um, he, he was a great father figure for the likes of myself, John Embry, Mike Gatton, David Gower, Ian Botham, all these sort of guys. And uh, he, he was full of wisdom. And he always used to say, you know, when you get in, book him for bed and breakfast, he used to say, get in, get to the 50, get 100, get 150, 200. Because the next time you go in, you might get a ball that shoots along the deck, sure. naught. You mm. might, the next time you go in, you might get one that gloves you, naught. You'll be happy you made 170 in that innings and didn't give it away on 100 or whatever. And that was the mentality. So huh. you learn these things are, are offer wiser players, ex-players than you. And if you're a smart mm. player, you listen to the old players and you pick up, you know, your knowledge. That's what I said about attitude, technical knowledge. Knowledge is everything. And you know? it, it does start to come together for you, like big things start to come along. You, you make that first hundred, uh, you play in the centenary test at Lords in 1980 against Australia. You're in the Wisdom 5 Cricketers of the Year in 1980. You go to the Caribbean the next year and make a couple of hundreds against a really tough team, you know, in a series that England lose, but you're still standing up and, and making those runs. You must be feeling at this point, like, you really belong at this level. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get in the 100 at Lords and then uh, it was peculiarly for me... I, I, I fared better against the West Indies and that type of attack mm -hmm. and spinners. The medium pacer type bowlers caused me more trouble in my career. Right. Not everyone, but obviously Terry Alderman's a famous example. You know, playing against Terry, I wore out four pair of pads, I think. <laughs> you know, hit me on the pad so often. Um, uh, but it worked for me. I mean, the West Indies type bowling, <laughs> look, there's a great saying. No one likes fast bowling, just some play it better than others. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, <laughs> you know, I, I, it didn't, I, I sort of handled that bowling. And, of course, in 81 in the West Indies, the wickets were true, bouncy, but true. Mm -hmm. um, and and they had, they had the, you know, probably the best quartet of bowlers, Roberts, Croft, Garner, Holding. I mean, Malcolm Marshall would get into that side, obviously, mm. in, instead of one of them, because for me, he's, him and Dennis Lilly are number one as fast bowlers. Yeah, it's, it's a great... I look back at it, a great experience. I was with Colin Croft last week. He was over doing a gig with me. You know, it was great to see him, you know, and it's tough out there on the field, but I, I, I think being a, a, an international sportsman, you want to do well for your country, your team. But the other challenge is, I always felt... You always want to put your skill up against the best. Mm. So part of the part of the thing that drives you forward or drove me forward, I want to play up against the best players. Because you want to see 
I don't want to avoid the best players. I want to play against them. If, you, if, if someone's not injured and not playing, you think, well, you could think, well, that's good, you know, they're not as good a team without Dennis Lilly in their side or Shane Warne, but you want to you want to match up against them. Mm. You want to put your skill on the line against them. That's what it's about. And I suppose another part of that is the resilience to bounce back when things aren't going quite so well. So you've got a, a box seat to history in 81. You play in the three brilliant Botham test matches, albeit without making a, a significant contribution yourself. You do lose your spot in the team in 81, but you do get taken to India in 81, 82, where it's a, a sort of an attritional series. You lose 1-0, but you're not that far from the setup. but you have to go through a second trough. And that's the case for a lot of test cricketers isn't it you get your chance you do well you have to fight back a second third and fourth time yeah I mean there are ups and downs aren't there and it's it's not whether you get knocked down that's the key it's how you get up and fight back yeah because everyone gets knocked down in life and you've got to get up dust yourself down and you know Mm. uh, I'm going to go again but I'm going to go better next time Surely it doesn't get much tougher than six tests in India in a series that they win 1-0. You've got five draws on that tour. I mean, that's painful just reading the scorecards. <laughs> well, look, I, I think in those days what happened was, it, it, to be fair, we, we lost the first test in Mumbai and then they produce what I would call shirt-front wickets, mm-hmm. OK? White, no grass, pretty difficult to get a result after that they were happy to win one nil you know unlike when i was coaching with england many years later 2012 when we when england beat them 2-1 we lost the first test in armalabad uh ms Dhoni was captain he wanted to beat us 4-0 so he produced more turning wickets but we played better or peterson and cook played better on those wickets and we won in those days once india won a game You know, that was it. It was, it was difficult. They were flat, you know, wickets. You could do anything with it, the ball. Uh, there's, there's the match where you make the, your 100 over there. Um, Vishwanath makes 222. Do you remember anything about that innings? Yeah, he, he, he cut, cut us to death, what I remember. He was a good little player, wasn't he? I mean, they, we had Gavaska and him. There's Vensarka. You know, he was, had a good test record as well. Uh, you know, they, they had some very good cricketers. And in their own conditions... You know that they were they were brilliant, weren't they? I mean, in in that era, their fielding wasn't great. You know, Coley's made them into a top fielding side now over the last several years. But they like batting and bowling. They didn't travel so well. You know, they would mm. say that when they you know came to England or went to Australia, they struggled. But in their own country, on wickets that turned a bit slow turners, they were tough. So the ton at Chennai. You're not a senior player in the team quite yet, but you're, you know, you're an established player in the team and, and that's kind of it for a while. There, there's quite a long England hiatus after electing to go to South Africa. There's an interesting quote from Matthew Engel, who was the former Wisden editor who covered the tour for The Guardian. He said, what the South Africans got from the major cricketing countries were fringe players, ageing players and pissed off players without exception. I don't think you meet any of the criteria there. I mean, you're going and you're selected as captain, but it doesn't feel like at that stage you're a fringe player or, or a pissed off player or an ageing player. So that puts you in a slightly different category to a number of your colleagues who went. Yeah, look, I was a professional cricketer. I had one way of making a living. I was the touring contract to finish at the end of February when we come back from Sri Lanka after the Indian tour. My Essex contract started on the 1st of April. There was a month in between. I'd played cricket in South Africa, uh, club cricket in South Africa in 75 for Greenpoint. Oh, really? They were the first team in the Cape Town like league to have a non-white player in their side you know which was you or is that you no, no a non-white player. sorry non-white, my, my a non-white player called right. Dickie Conrad 
he played in our team, which was unheard of, you know, right. because it was whites only. Right. And, you know, we played and, and, and the cricket, you know, they were starting to try to, you know, change things slowly. And um, I, I'm not saying I went to South Africa uh, totally because of that, but, you know, I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. Other people, journalists like yourself, you know, could go to South Africa and earn a living. If you're an, uh, an accountant, a plumber, a lawyer, you could all go and earn a living. But yeah. as a sportsman, you couldn't. So I think the difference was we went as, a, as an organised team, obviously. And, it, you know, the authorities here felt they had to ban us because other countries wouldn't have toured this. So we accepted the ban. So, um, you know, I, I, I think... There are double standards in a way because subsequently after that, when I went to India and places, you go into a hotel, you go into the little shops in the hotel where they sell all the emeralds and all the diamonds and all that. Where does the diamonds come from? De Beers, that's mm. where they come from. Kimberley in South Africa. So there's a lot of double standards here, you know. Is it, is it something like, how do, you, how do you look on that decision looking back now? Do you feel any differently than you did at the time? It's a question I get asked a lot, you know. If you knew now, if you knew then what you know now, would you have gone? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, no one expected to ban. I mean, we knew that we, it was not going to go unnoticed and something was not going to happen. But mm. did we know we were going to get banned for three years? No, no, we didn't. We didn't fight it in court. We could have fought it. There, there were people who would have made finance available for right. us to fight it, but we didn't. We accepted the decision. And look, I don't look back of it and say I made a huge mistake. I accept what happened. Uh, we played cricket for Western Province. I'm, I played against a lot of fantastic players. I learned as a cricketer in those th uh, two years I played for Western Province. And I came back in 85. So I, I don't have any regrets and I don't have any feelings that, uh, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done that. You know, I, I accept what happened. I was asking 89 to go on the next tour and I turned that down. Mm. You said you didn't know you'd necessarily get the, the three-year whack at the time. If you knew that was going to happen, would have that been reason enough not to have gone? Because you did have to experience, I mean, as captain of the tour, you were being held to a different standard to yeah. some of your other colleagues, I suppose. And, I mean, you went after the Sun famously when they said you weren't sort of as committed to playing for England as you otherwise might be. I mean, you obviously took a lot of it to heart, understandably. Yeah, um, because, because my dad sent me... I was in Cape Town playing for West Province. England were in Australia. Okay, under Bob Willis. Yep. And I was scoring runs for Western Province, and England weren't going well. And and, and this guy wrote the the article, and, and mm. your parents take it to heart. He wrote it, you know, England struggling in Australia, Graham Goose playing in Cape Town, making hundreds, couldn't care less, you know, about about England. And and it was all quotes, right? Right. And as journalists, I'm sure <laughs> it was all quoted. Uh, they lifted an article from the Cape Times, but they they'd altered it. Anyway, cut long story short. Um, I said I didn't say these things anyway. We went to court, and the son said, "We fully admit. Well, you know what I'm going to say. They fully admit we, th this is not true. Yep. But we didn't think it was offensive. Well, they took a kick in, didn't they, in the court? Because huh. it's not true. But it upset my father a lot. In, in the last couple of years, when there've been a lot more conversations about racial equality in cricket in England and so on, have you had any conversations with people about?" your history and, and the decisions you made and has it 
given you any different perspectives on anything? No, it doesn't come up very often, you know, because, uh, you know, there was an England tour cancelled just after that when I was cap- uh, captain in, in 1988 mm. because myself and John Embry's South African connections, they cancelled the tour. And then the following year, I was still captain. We went back to India mm. for the Nehru Trophy. So th- things change very quickly, you know, yep. in politics. And there was also, even before you went to South Africa, there was Robin Jackman in the Caribbean when the government of Guyana wouldn't give him a visa and so England cancelled the test and didn't go yeah, and play in, yeah. in Guyana. Uh, look, Robin, uh, Bob Willis went down injured. They called up Robin Jackman. He's married to a South Af- African mm. girl, lived in Cape Town, so they flew him all the way to Georgetown, Guyana. As soon as his feet touched the tarmac, he was arrested. The government in Guyana was a communist government led by a guy called Forbes Burnham. There was a massive political row. We had to fly out there the next day. Test match was cancelled to Barbados. We had to wait a week while the other island governments decided with this political row whether the tour could go ahead. In that time, our, man- our assistant manager, Kenny Barrington, died of a heart attack. Mm. I'm not saying it was to do with that. You know, mm. uh, uh, and I, I got my hundred in B- Bridgetown directly after that. After they said the tour was on, that was an emotional time for me, because he was a, a great, as I've said, you know, great uh, mentor to me. Yeah, it, 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 we were at the time of all this political stuff going on, so yeah, it was rife then. And so it continued. I mean, Australia comes to England in 1985. That's when your your ban ends, and you're playing in yeah. in that Ashes series. I mean, that's when the Australian team are recruiting for what became their Rebel Tour. And, of course, I'm sure you remember that the comments from the Australian Prime Minister at the time really went after the tour- tourists that went, up, went over to South Africa in 85, 86. So, yeah, you were kind of going through it. This continued to be a part of the, the conversation in cricket all the way through the, the main part of your career. Yeah, that part. You know, I went to West Indies in 86 with England and, and had a bit of a ding-dong with Lester Bird, the Prime Minister. Uh, Commonwealth Secretary was involved with you know statements and that about I apologize for going to South Africa and it, you know it just all it, it was just all around at that time mm. you know There's I mean once you once we've been we'd been you know we served our yep. bad and we, we just had to get on with trying to play the game and when you did return to the test team you make that sort of emphatic 196 at the oval to finish the series your first Ashes ton, a consistent series in the Windies that follows in, in 85, 86, but you're there for Viv's 56 baller in Antigua, of course, which you've written Absolutely. about uh, in the past. So it's another eventful tour, and I guess you're back on, back on the bike as far as being an England cricketer is concerned, yeah. an Ashes winner too. Yeah, I mean, going to the West End, that was a tough tour for us. We got beat 5-0 in that game. Yeah, I, I, I played okay in some of the tests. I think I got 100 in, I think I got the Hody 100 on the tour in a mm. one-day game, mm. actually, at, at Port of Spain. Um, but yeah, it, it was a turbulent time for, for for English cricket. You know, I didn't go to Australia in eighty six, eighty seven because my twins were born. I got rubbished in the press for that. You know, I remember the comments. You know, how can you be changing nappies when you could be down having a hot tinny on the you know cold tinny on the beach <laughs> down in down in the Bondi or something like that? They were they were the things that was being written. Really? That was unusual at the time, wasn't it? I mean, there was a perception as you say, that you're a reluctant tourist at times, but you've made the call on the basis of family. If a cricketer did that these days, they'd be celebrated for it. But you copped a lot of shit 30 years ago for it. A lot, it. a lot, yeah, yeah. I mean, in those days, you could opt out of tours. Yep. I mean, you can now, for the reasons you said, you know, for resting and whatever. You can't opt yep. out. They can tell you you're not going to go. Slightly different. In those days, you could... 
because I remember my first test. I've still got the card. My dad, you know, you had an invitation to play. Yeah, right. You didn't have to accept. And I don't know whether that was the yeah. same for the Aussies or other tees. They sent you a card that you've been selected. If you if you decide to accept this invitation, sure. please, please contact so-and-so. <laughs> RSVP. Yes, exactly. It was exactly like that. So, so you could, and lots of people did, miss tours and yeah. then play... You know, sure. Well, it's not an era of central contracts. You no. know, there, there's not an England, a full-time professional England team, 365 no, days a year. It's whoever's available yeah. from from yeah. counties. And but you're right. I, I copped a lot of flack for, uh, you know, deciding to stay at home. You know, to miss an Australian tour. But you know, the twins were born. I felt I needed to be there with them. And, and it corresponds with, a, I guess, another time away from England cricket so you serve your band you come back you go well then you're out of international cricket for 17 months a combination of missing the tour of 86 87 you know the Grand Slam tour let's start with that first I mean you, you choose to miss for aforementioned family reasons but is there sort of a pang of regret sitting at home when, when England win the Ashes in Australia and they uh, they beat all comers in white ball cricket or were you completely at peace yeah, with I the mean, call and, they you know they they got rubbished at the beginning of the tour as yeah. being the worst team of all time but they end up winning everything yeah. which is amazing <laughs> No, I, 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 I don't really remember, but yeah, I mean, you obviously want to be part of that, but you, you make a decision and you have to stick by that. And I didn't play the next year either. Well, that's what I was going to say. So 87, things don't go so no. well. You end up in the Essex 2s famously. I mean, it, it, you have a, a significant mid-career slump. Uh, yeah. Talk us through how challenging it is being having been at the peak of your powers not long before and then not being able to seemingly get the ball off the square at the level yeah, below. Yeah, so, so in 87, I had a poor... I played a few one-day internationals at the beginning of the year. My, my technique had fallen a little bit into disrepair, a little bit. And um, I remember, you know, um, toying with different ideas, you know, and I was going through not a great time. I was still scoring runs, a bit, a few runs here at, at Essex, but uh, uh, it, it wasn't going well. What... I wouldn't say saved my career, but what turned it round was that the, it was the bicentenary celebration yep. match at, at Lords. And of course, what they did was they selected the teams at the beginning of the summer, okay, for the two sides, the, the rest <laughs> versus the MCC. And I was in the team on previous performances. <laughs> so I stayed in the team. And of course, uh, I came to the match and scored 100 in that game. And that got me on the World Cup trip to India in 87 so if they would have picked that team a bit later that might not have happened and that 87 World Cup goes well for you the famous 100 against India in the semi-final at Mumbai to get England into the decider you know the leading run scorer for England I think the whole competition actually the 87 World Cup but certainly for England the second time you've reached a World Cup final mm. this time it's against Australia you're chasing 254 you get them off to a good start we all know what happens next with Gat and the reverse sweep and, yeah. and so on but yeah, for the second time, you get there and don't quite yeah, get there. But well, you personally have had a great tournament. Yeah. So I mixed mean, emotions. I mean, look, the, the Indians in the... Se Firstly, there's two semi-finals: Pakistan, Australia, India. You know, they were... they. It, it, it was a done deal. It was going to be an India-Pakistan sure. final. And you that's and what, Jeff Mash decided otherwise. We, <laughs> we, we messed up the, you know, the, the plan for them. We played on old used pitches. The ball was going to turn. It suited India. And you, you went out with a plan. I'm going to sweep pretty much every ball they bowl or try to. And it came off. And they didn't change the field very much. Kapil Dev, the captain. And it just came off that day. Sometimes you have a plan. It doesn't work. That day it did work. And, you know, it, it, everyone mentions it. In the final, Australia played better than us. It was a close game. The gap decision, looking back... Yeah, it was a poor decision because 
it's the first ball Alan Border bowled. I mean, mm. he's a great mate, Alan Border. He played here, yeah, 86 yeah. and 88. And if I had to have someone to bat for my life, he would be that person, mm. you know, because a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant bloke, brilliant player. But he comes on because things are going okay for us. And Gareth plays this shot, first ball. Well, first ball. We didn't, he didn't need to do it. But look, we all make mistakes. We all, you know, it's, what's, what's the point? You know, Australia was slightly better than us on the day. Mm. I suppose for me, I don't have any real regrets in my career, but planning three World Cup finals mm. and losing all three. So I was quite pleased when Owen Morgan won it in 2019 because I was the only player who played in all three matches and obviously we lost all three. I think you're the only cricketer ever to play in three World Cups for three finals for three losses. Exactly. Right. And, and to bring that up. It, <laughs> yeah. It was, I mean, that was important, um, that World Cup win in 2019 for the preceding generations, it seems. Like, I remember um, Derek Pringle running around at, at oh, Lords yeah. that day wearing the shirt that they'd given him with his name on the back. And, it, it, like, all of the past players who played at World Cups, well, the ones that we ran into seemed very emotional about finally having that moment, England having that moment. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the World Cup in 87, I think that, that was the last World Cup with Red Bull yep. as well. It was. Because uh, 92 in Australia was uh, obviously the first with the iconic kit actually which you still see mm. loads of people wear it all teams wear that kit with the yep. shoulder stripes Absolutely. you know Hi I'm Matt Renshaw and you're listening to the Final Word Podcast You've been around a long time by 1988 1035 <laughs> yes. where most players are thinking about sort of packing it in at least at, at international level but that's when your career gets turbocharged. I mean, you make 459 runs against the West Indies, that extraordinary West Indies attack. They, they beat you handsomely 4-0, but you're still the player of the series. I doubt that's ever happened, Jeff, where someone's been player of the series when mm. a side's been so soundly beaten that includes a, a century at knots to, to start the, the series and you end up the last of, well, depends how you define it, four or five captains in the yeah. summer and you're the last man standing and you're suddenly the, the captain of England at age 35. You, you couldn't have possibly expected that at the start of the summer, considering you weren't even in the team in 87. No, look, um, things didn't go well, obviously, with the gap incident off the field, and then John yep. Embry was captain, and, of course, he wasn't going to play at Headingley. And then I don't think they just came to me, because I was captain of Essex at the time. Sure. We won the championship when Alan Balder was here in 86. 87, we didn't do anything, uh, really. Um, so I was captain, but I mean, I, I'm not sure they didn't ask me to be captain because they didn't rate me as a captain or whatever, but I think mm. I think just things conspired and I didn't think maybe they got the idea that I would be interested. I, I was sort of interested, but not that fast. When it came my way, it gave me the X factor as a player. Mm. There's no doubt about that. The responsibility, the honour of captain your country. When people ask me, what's the one thing in your career you remember? What, what performance? There is no performance. When someone asks you to captain your country, nothing can top that. Because you're not, to me, you're not in charge of just those other 10 people. You're at the top of your sport, okay? So you're the role model. You are the ambassador. Mm. You're the person that every cricketer on this ground today looks up to, you know? the other professional cricketers, your club cricketers, your recreational cricketers who go out every Saturday and play for fun, the kids who play at school, you know, boys and girls now, whatever, you are at the top. Yep. And that is a huge responsibility. And one, 
one that I, I sort of relished. And, and I never buy this line that, you know, uh, captains, he puts pressure on a player. He doesn't perform so well because mm. he's captain. I, I'm sorry, I don't buy that line. For me, you, well, you just, have, you just have to look at the numbers. The numbers are so much better when I was captain than when I was a player. And the numbers are extraordinary through, you know, the, the, especially that first couple of years of the 90s when you're going bananas. There's the, uh, the ashes just before that where things aren't, aren't going quite so hot. Um, no, no, as I said to you about evolving. So yep. my uh, technique had fell into disrepair a bit. So I went back to Jeffrey Boycott, who opened with 10 years before. I asked him about my game. He gave me one little thing about my game, the, the way I was, I was moving around too much. I went back to... Uh, a similar uh, position to when he what he remembered and to be fair it sort of worked straight away so Jeffrey mm. now will take credit for all of that I can tell <laughs> <Sure>. you <laughs> naturally <laughs> which I don't mind but I mean um, you know Terry Alderman exposed uh, you know a frailty in my game and then I managed to put that right mm -hmm. so I thank Terry Alderman in a way strangely because I kept getting LBW, you know, I got a few runs in that series. We were poor in that series, you know, we, we, we lost, you know, we should have drew the first test match mm. where we just had to bat out the first last afternoon and we got bowled out by Murph Hughes yep. uh, at Headingley. Anyway, you know, they deserved to win. We were poor. David Gale lost the captaincy. I came back. But that was another evolving moment for me or, or year for me mm. where I stepped my... You know, my game up, I evolved my game, and then I had the best from there, 1990 through to 93, 94 was my best period. Just to go back a little bit there on the captaincy, you, you talked about how you, you, you relished the captaincy and agreed with you. You have that bumper series I already referenced in 88. You're going to be leading England that winter, and they effectively been off the series because of South Africa, what yeah. happened in the previous years. They denied you a visa, a number of other players a visa. You touched on the inconsistency before, the fact that you'd been there in 87 for the World Cup. You would go there for the Nehru Cup in 89, but it wasn't to be in 88, 89. But what, what's quirky for me is that you are the captain for that tour, albeit without it going ahead, then you're not the captain for the 89 Ashes series. David Gower is. It seems to be sort of broadly in line with English cricket at the time where the captaincy was a, a rotating prize that was given out willy-nilly and you didn't quite have the team under your stewardship full-time at that point when, in hindsight, you probably should have. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, Ted Dexter was, uh, I think, the chairman of selectors. I quite liked Ted, but he, he wanted David back. I think they really wanted Gap back, but they wouldn't have Gap back after what happened. So, so what, just explain to me why having led the team at the end of 88, doing so well, and you were named the captain for 88, 89, why you weren't just automatically by default the captain for the Ashes? What happened there? No, I can't tell you. You'd have to ask Ted Odd. Dexter. I, I can't tell you, but I mean, I, I think there was a change of chairman of right. selectors. And obviously that winter passed by and they changed it. So David came back for 89, didn't go well, and then... I came back off that and did it till when, 93, to the Ashes in 93. Would I mean, I'd had captains the experience. I was very lucky. I had the two best captains I could have ever. Obviously, Mike Brilly was a, was a tactical grandmaster. And the guy who was captain here, who, who will be in here today, uh, Keith Fletcher, was my captain right. at Essex. And he was a very, um, not the greatest man manager, I'd say, but brilliant tactician as, to try and win cricket matches. You often hear about Keith Fletcher being such an, an important figure here as, yeah. as leader through that sort of fabled era. Yeah. Yeah, just to go back to 89, let's do some other, some, some myth-busting myth or, or, um, or reinforcing something that may or may not be true. 
Hi, I'm Graham Gooch. You've reached my answer phone. Uh, I'm probably out. Leg before wicket to Alderman. True or false that that was your answer phone message during the 89 Ashes? Uh... It's sort of true. <laughs> You've not got quite the terminology right, but okay. the message goes. Sorry, uh, Graham Gooch here. Sorry, our team's all out. Um, please leave a message. It could have been that one, Yeah, actually. I like it better. I'm out, leg before wicket to Alderman. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's misremembered a little bit. I mean, you make runs at the start of the series, but, but nevertheless, by the end of it, you actually volunteer to be left out of the side, or, or so the story yeah. goes. I mean, That's by that true. point, you're 36. When you admit yourself at 36, you're probably doing so in full knowledge. That, that could well be it. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I wasn't playing well enough, and I, I thought that you know things weren't going well, and you know someone else is going to have a better chance here. You know, you're thinking of the team, but um, I remember Steve Ward gave me a bit of stick for that. You know, like sledged me a bit afterwards when I came mm. back. You know, doing that, which probably fair enough. Um, I, I don't know. You know. It, Run making is, is an up and down thing, you know, when you're doing well, you feel full of beans and everything, but you know, you can go to some low points as well, you go up and down. 89-90, that West Indies series, there's like the bounce back and then you also break your arm, so it seems like you keep running into a, you keep tripping over a hurdle at some point every time it seems like you're getting a run on. Uh, yeah, I mean, you take the ups and downs, um, you know, I, I was generally throughout my career injury free, you know. I had a, uh, a few things, as you said, broken fingers in, in Australia. The, you can see all the scars here. And I got Oof, infection I in my finger. The guy who fixed my hand is one of my best friends still. 30-odd years later, right. Randall Sash uh, lives in Adelaide. Uh, great guy. His son uh, uh, is the global ambassador for Penfolds Wine, so that's a very good contact. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, but I, I think generally for me, I, I was quite I was quite lucky. You know, I had my finger broken in in West Indies in 1990 when we could have won that match. Yeah, uh, should have won that match. Well, I mean, if we, not for was it rain and bad light combination yeah, it's of the, the one two. and only time in my career where. Okay, so we had to chase us something like 160. One, 151, and, one, you're, and you're 120 for five. Effectively, six yeah, is your broken arm. It was arm, like a minute still. to midnight when yeah, they called yeah. the game off, I'm telling you. It was mm. so dark. And I was going to go back in. I had an ejection in my hand. Right. I couldn't feel, you know, I, I couldn't feel my hand really, but I was going to go back in next. And, um, and I remember at the start of that inning, myself and Wayne Larkins, we brought Wayne Larkins back from that tour. He's the mm. same age as me, experienced mm. player, you know, good county player we felt we had some youngsters your NASA Sames your Alex Stewart's all these guys so we needed an experience anyway on this spiteful pitch at the end we had to get 151 and, and I never ever done this in my career and I said to I said to Ned his nickname was um, Ned I, I, I'm going to say this to you um, I've never said this before but I think we've got to sledge these sledge the bowlers from the start we've got to sledge them and the reason for it, the reason for that was, we wanted to try and wind them up to get them to bowl short, mm. okay? Because if they bowl a length, <laughs> you know the ball was, you know the old ball was just taking off the one that broke my hand, you know, from a length. So I never, ever, never thought about doing that bit ever again. But sledge them, trying to get it didn't work actually. Right. It didn't. Work. Just, <laughs> just because you couldn't, like, it was so unpredictable if they were no, bowling look, short. It, if they bowled short. You know, you're going to have a chance of cutting or hooking it. You take your chances, right. okay? But if you bowl a length at that pace yep. on this pitch, the odd ball was taken off, and, you know. And is it the umpires who say you're mad and you need to come off because you can't possibly see? 
No, it was so dark. Yeah. If you've seen that, that, that during COVID, they played the, yeah. the film. It was great to watch it. Wasn't it great? It was great yeah. to watch those old films. And you Watching know that, you gesticulating from the yeah, dressing room. And I'm, you wanted to get back I'm on. I'm trying to say, you make the decision. If you can see, yep. stay out there, right? If you can't, come off. I mean, they're going, a, you know. It's one of the points of a great series. I mean, you famously describe it as the makings of a goodish side uh, around that time and quite a quotable line. Again, despite not completing the Ashes in 89, you're the captain for that 89-90 series and that's when you really get the job full-time effectively. But winning at Jamaica, that first test match, Devon Malcolm, you mentioned the youngsters making their test debut. I mean, yeah, by that point, you can see how you might be in the future, as you described it, a goodish side, and so it would be through the early 90s. Yeah, we, we had two good players, you know, Alan Lamb and Robin Smith, good players of fast bowling. I mean, the West Indies never, ever thought they were going to lose that first test. You know, everyone said 5-0. Yeah. But we, we played disciplined cricket, we, we played to our plan, and it worked, and sometimes it does. If we'd have won the second one, I don't think they would have come back from that, to be right. honest. But we were, I, you know, if I hadn't broke, you know, all lifts in cricket, isn't it? If I hadn't broken my hand and, and, and it rained, it rained for bloody four hours, you know. Mm. When I came off and went to the clinic to have the x-ray, mm. I said to the cab driver, because at Port of Spain, you can see, you can see over the hills, the mountains, the rain coming in. And I said, God, man, this is going to rain. How long is it going to rain for? Man, you don't worry, man. It's going to shower, man. You'll be all right. <laughs> rain for four hours. And it took 10 minutes for Ian Bishop to try and bowl the first ball. He kept running up and couldn't. And they had to give it to Ezra Mosley. Yeah. So, and they bowled eight overs an hour or something. Desmond mm. Haynes was captain. Viv didn't play. That was your main frustration, wasn't it? That it was a slow over rate more than the... Nine, eight or nine overs an hour he yeah. bowled. You know. Uh, what did you do? Anyway, it's all history now. So that brings us back around to 1990, where we were, uh, where we started today. The crazy summer that you have, huge runs that summer. The 456 in the match, obviously. Is it is it the fact that you've got the captaincy at that point that makes you like go on this mad fitness regime and decide that you're you're just going to be the fittest guy in the team, um, regardless of age, and, and keep pushing on? No, that happened some 10, 10 12 years before. I mean, there was the one. There was the one story which is absolutely true. So I used to live in a place called Gideon Park, Romford, not far from here, 12, 13 miles from here. We used to play a, a week at a place called Valentine's Park, a week's cricket festival cricket, mm. which is Ilford, which is the club I used to play for when when I played club cricket. Okay, so that's about nine, ten miles away from where I lived. I used to run to the ground every morning, which was madness, really, and then play all day. I didn't run back. Someone used to give me a lift back <laughs> after the game. But I used to run to the game. So it, it was a bit over the top. So, no, that started a lot earlier. Right. But I, I do put down my longevity as a player to the fitness regime that I installed you know, for myself many years before. Well, it's such an unusual thing. I mean, you're 37 by this stage. You make... It's worth putting the numbers out there. So you make 752 runs in a three-test series against India. That'll never be broken. The most test runs ever in an English summer, overtaking Bradman. Again, very unlikely that'll ever be broken. The most remarkable part of that, I think, is the fact that you're 37 and it's taken you, as Wisdom described, it took you to 37 to reach greatness. I mean, mentioned it before, but that, that usually is when your ordinary cricketer is looking to do something else, but you're just turning it on. Yeah, well, the, the fitness was there, the motivation was there, and, you, you know, 
you have to be right in the mind. And my mind as being England captain was right. I, I, I love playing. I love scoring runs. I love being out there. I love the, the battle against the best, as you say, uh, as I've said to you. And I was still, you know, in good condition, you know, better condition at that age than I probably was 10 years. Right. And all I would say now to you is if I had my time again, I wish I'd, I'd have known all those things, you know, 10, 15 years before. But you don't. You sort of evolve yourself. You learn as you go on. You become smarter. You do all these things. It should have been, you know, there is a great saying, isn't there? The only competitive advantage you've got over the opposition is to learn faster. Well, I wish I had learned faster. Hmm. Well, at least you had the longevity to apply the lessons. But it's interesting that coming into 1991, you've, you've still got David Gower issues um, at, at one particular time, aeroplane related. Look, myself and David played all our test career pretty much together. We, we, we had disagreements when I was captain, mainly because David, unlike me, and I, I did a theatre gig with him a few weeks back, and, and he said this to me, I didn't. I've explained to you, over my whole career, I evolved myself as a player, right? Different points, made different changes, changes. He freely admits that he was, at the beginning, was a wonderful, um, natural, stroke-making player, and he stayed like that mm. all the way through his yep. career. Didn't really make any changes to his attitude, to the way he went about it, or whatever. This is his words, not mine, mm. okay? And he was a brilliant player. And we fell out because when I was captain a little bit, I, uh, what I wanted, I had all these young players in the side. He was an experienced, world-class player. I, I wanted some, I wanted a, a, a role model effect, you know. See how this guy's still working at, at his age, mid-30s, you know. But David was David. And he, and he, and he, he couldn't really, I think, give that a little bit. What R David really gave you is when he took guard. Mm. That's when he really gave it to you. Yeah, I think does he's, that make sense? No, it absolutely does. I mean, he has a really good series in 1991, a couple series. of hundreds, hundred at Melbourne, hundred yeah. at Sydney, which people still talk of who were there. And you know, you've got a first innings lead in, in in two of those matches and aren't able to convert that to victory. There's the big collapse at Melbourne and, yeah. and all the rest of it. I mean, that added frustration, kind of again that that sense you're a goodish team, but not a particularly. You're not a very good team. You're not going to win series in Australia being a goodish team at that stage. But there are some building blocks there. And, yeah, I find it interesting that Gow has been quoted subsequently saying that you went out there every day and your game plan was built on a basis of consistency. You could reach close to your potential most times you walked out there. And he knew that wasn't necessarily how he was going to play. He was going to be a world beater or it wasn't going to work out. And he needed to accept that that's the way he was too. Just yeah, contrasting right, that, fortunes. That, I, I tried to build in the consistency, uh, a way of playing, so that even if you're not feeling at your absolute best, you can still sort of do a job, if, yep. you, if you see what I mean. Uh, look, he, a Gower century is worth watching, yeah. you know, because it's, it, he's one of those Mark War type players, easy on the eye, lovely to watch. You know, the, the player I like watching most now, Rohit Sharma, you watch him yep. bat, he's lovely to watch the bat. Beautiful technician. And, and there are some players like that. And... Um, I, look, look, you know, we're good mates now, you know, we did since the All I would say is, you know, you make decisions in good faith at the time, and that's all you can do. Mm. And you mentioned you two get on well now. I mean, obviously, in 1993, we're jumping forward a bit here, but it's worth just tailing off with this Gower uh, subset. So he gets left out of the test team when you go to India, 
you know, as the documentary that that has put out a couple of spin washed as it were never really a chance on those tracks with that team but you know he comes over as a broadcaster so he's kind of casting an eye over the work that you're doing after you've left him out the MCC brouhaha where they censure the selection panel for leaving out Gower and all the rest of it I mean this dragged on for some time and, and you've come at the other end as mates uh, eventually yeah 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 look um I suppose you could say that you know I hastened his twenty odd plus years uh, career in his in the media, which he did all right in. Um, as I say, look, in those days you played one day cricket, you played Test cricket, you had the same squad. There was not no mixing up of the squads; they were mm. all the same players. I freely admit, probably in that in, in that series in India, uh, we should have we should have selected him because he'd have played better than some of the players we we had. Right. Um, the spin wash tape uh, made us look a bit like a pub team on tour, didn't it? It was a bit... Uh, yeah, it was OK. It was, it was quite funny. I remember Dermot Reeve having the, carrying the video ca- camera around. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we, we just didn't handle that. I mean, I, was, I, I didn't play the second test because I was ill, which is unusual for me, and I didn't play well at all, and we didn't handle the, the turning ball. Uh, that's the simple. We had some good players on that trip, but we just didn't handle it. We got, and I, uh, my, my story about that, which is absolute true. So I come back, we just got trashed three nil, right? Ted Dexter is our chairman of selectors. Okay, I like Ted. Okay, he wants to have a meeting with me, so he comes to my house. I used to live in a house then that had about a 70, 80 yard drive up to the front door. This motorbike turns in <laughs> to the drive. But he's a bit eccentric, Ted. Yeah. Yeah. Good guy. Great player. And uh, he stri- bloke strips off his leathers, got his helmet on, and, and he's got the blooming blazer and MCC tie on underneath. <laughs> he comes in. OK, Ted, right, so I think I'm going to get a, a roast in here because we were crap. OK, so he's, he's, on about, he's on about the matches and that. And I said, yeah, well, we didn't play. And he said, but, he said, but, but, but the main thing, he says, I don't know if you're, you're aware, that we got a lot of bad press about train travelling, looking slovenly, wearing tracksuits, having all these pictures taken, sitting on, te- <laughs> on Tetley beer crates, because they were our sponsor. Tetley Bitter was on the yes. tracksuit, uh-huh. a beer, you know, in Yorkshire. And, and all the media doled all these pictures out when we were getting trashed, you know, that we weren't, you know, behaving properly or, or you know, representing our country properly, the way we looked and everything. You know, if you've done a 12-hour train trip in India, you know all about it, because mm-hmm. the, 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 the airline pilots were on strike. Anyway... And um, he said, um, yeah, but the most important thing, he said, all those pictures that came out in the press was terrible, terrible. He said, um, and, and, and wearing tracksuits and that, he said, I, I think we're going to have to get rid of tracksuits. It looks so bad. I think we need to practice in white, you know, like whites, you know, jumpers nice. and whites. And I said, I said, Ted, I said, don't come here, mate, and, 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 and tell me about practising tracksuit. I said, we were rubbish on the field. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't hit it off the square. We couldn't handle the spin. We couldn't get anyone out. You know, Camberley got double under. Tendulkar got a million bloody runs, you know. And they were talking to me about tracksuits. You know, come here and give me a, give me a roast him about the game. Anyway, we agreed we were going to have white tracksuits the following summer. <laughs> we had white tracksuits. And, uh, um, what a look! That's a yeah, that's a fashion. Are. That's before its time. The yeah, old the yeah. old white feeler tracksuits that um, yeah. every parachute pants and all the rest. Every of questionable character at, at raves used to yeah. wear. Um, yeah. As we reach towards the end, uh, the remiss of us not to ask about the ninety-one innings at, at Headingley, the one-five-four not out, carrying your bat. I mean, it's 
widely described as one of the greatest all-time test innings. Again, it's sort of deep into your career. You're the captain leading from the front, uh, leading a victory against the Windies in the first test. So you did have a great record against, you know, this is your last series against them. You averaged 45, 26 test matches. I mean, you, you really saved your best for them and, and not least that innings at, at Leeds that people will talk about forever. Yeah, I, look, scoring runs... Or, or giving a performance is a great thing for a sportsman. But what you should remember is when your performance helps your team win the game. Mm. It doesn't have to be a, a big innings or a, a load of wickets or a load of goals or tries or whatever. It's a rugby match. It's when your performance wins the game. And obviously, in quite bowler-friendly conditions yep. in that match, you manage to get that score changed the game, you know, because it was always going to be a low-scoring game. It, it, to be fair, it suited our style of bowling. You know, we had medium-fast bowlers who moved the ball around. You know, against the West Indies in that era, you needed people who moved the ball laterally, sideways. Mm. The quicker it came, quicker it went to the boundary. You know, you, you didn't need fast bowlers against the West Indies. You wanted people who swung the ball. Anyway, we managed to come out on top, and to supply an innings like that it, it is a real favourite because... You know, it wasn't the the greatest technical innings, but you've mm. got to, you've got to fight it out, and that's part of international sport. You know, fighting out and making the score when it's tough. You know, bowlers win you the match on a shirt front win it wicket when there's nothing in it. They can get five or six. Batsmen win you a match when it's jagging around or mm. swinging around. If I can put a couple of numbers to you. 8,900, highest test run scorer for England until Alistair Cook and Joe Root come along. 118 tests, most that anyone had played until those two, Broad, Anderson, Alex Stewart, the only ones who've gone past you. And then over 67,000 professional runs, the most by anyone in the history of cricket ever. You talked about being a run maker. It must give you some real satisfaction to look at that and say um, you were the you consummate run maker. Uh, look, there's... To me, there's two things that make me uh, proud in a way. The longevity of being able to perform, okay? And you get quite emotional when you've played a long time. The longevity of being able to keep to a certain standard, you know? And obviously the number, and, and, and as the saying goes, it's not how, it's how many. And that's, that's nice. And the other thing, like coming here home, people come up to you. And they say, thank you, I enjoyed watching you play. And that's enough. Graham Gooch, after your career, there's so much to talk about as well. But mindful, you've got commitments here at Chelmsford today. You are the, the king of this place after all. Thanks for being uh, a wonderful guest with us on The Final Word. Uh, it's been brilliant to spend some time with you here. Thank you. Thanks for coming over. Cheers. Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon at the end of that long and fulfilling chat with Graham Gooch. Uh, Jeff, uh, there was a lot to get through there, which meant we, by the time he had to go off and meet his commitments at the club uh, for the day's play here at Chelmsford, uh, we didn't quite get to the very, very end of his career, but there is so much there, he packed so much in. Well, that was that was his uh, entire reason for existence that, that he told us about, was making the most of every opportunity. Yes. Doing everything that you could to make the most of it when the time came around. And so I feel like we did that. We we got into all of the detail that we could. And yeah, you can't you can't talk about all of the 67,000 runs. You know, you can't go through <laughs> them all one by one. That would take a bit too long. But uh, over time, we 
we got somewhere that felt like it mattered. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It's a nice way of seeing it that he packed as much into the time he had and we packed as much in into the time we had so it's in keeping with his career I mean we didn't go into the 92 World Cup where they came ever so close with himself and Neil Fairbrother Ian Botham back at his best Phil DeFreitas Graham Hick Alex Stewart so I mean that, that was a, a mighty team and yeah, there's a lot of nostalgia around the 92 side that he led as well including the shirt but the fact that they came so close to beating Pakistan in a similar final to 1987 as well the 93 series against Australia where he starts so well I mean Jeff we think about 93 and we think about Shane Warne at Manchester. Not often remembered that Gooch made 65 and 133 in that test match to get them going. Mm. Makes another century in the third test at Knotts, makes 120 there. He remains the, the number one nemesis for Australia. He gets them the draw in, in that test as well. But once the Ashes are gone and they're down 3 0, he hands over the captaincy. So he led England in 34 tests for 10 wins, 12 losses, and, and 12 draws. And it was the right time, clearly, for him to hand over as he was nearing. Well, just would have just been just beyond his 40th birthday, but it kind of reinforces that point from the start of his captaincy. They were a goodish team, you know, 10 wins, 12 losses, 12 draws. That's not great uh, in terms of an overall record, but it's nothing to be ashamed of either. He, he got them to a much better place from where he took over. He was still the nemesis for Australians, and, and I think I think what underlines that more than anything, I reckon, I haven't advanced this theory to you before, but mm. uh, were you familiar with the work of Paul Jennings as a child? Growing yes, up of in course. Australia? Yeah, how yes. couldn't you be? The, the, the wacky short stories of Paul Jennings. Right, one of them is a short story in which a kid gets given a magic pen. I think it's a quill, maybe some sort of feather type arrangement. And he can eat as much as he wants and then if he writes someone's name in the air at the end of the meal they get all of the calories from the meal <laughs> so he can make people gain weight right like and he starts doing it to kids at his school and he starts doing it to the teachers he doesn't like and then Australia's playing England in the cricket and he starts doing it to the English cricket captain and he makes him so fat that he can't play cricket anymore right right and then I think the twist at the end of the story is that the, the monkey paw catch is that after a certain period of time, the spell reverses and it all comes back to the original person. Of course. Which he doesn't realise. But I'm pretty sure, they don't name the England cricket captain, but I'm pretty sure the cricket captain that he's so worried about that he needs to, to make him explode is, I reckon that's Graham Gooch. I reckon Paul Jennings is writing about Graham Gooch in that story. That's what I've always thought. <laughs> I like that. And I, I suppose at least he had the fitness regime to keep the pounds off, even if he was uh, having uh, weight injected into him. The fact that, as he says, he was running nine miles to a club game. And, mm. yeah, I mean... He, he, he outlined it himself. The fact that he played his best cricket after 35 is because he, he remained the fittest guy in the team. And there's parallels there with Alistair Cook, who is playing in this game that we're here watching today. But Cook's still, what, he must be 37 himself now. There's no reason why Alistair Cook can't still be playing first-class cricket when he's sort of early 40s, the way that Gooch... Gooch played through until 1997, by the way. We didn't get a chance to kind of go through this with him. But, I mean... You know, he wasn't. He was never satisfied. There's that that title of the Steve War book, isn't it? The book around the uh, I think it was the 2001 Ashes. That he was never satisfied, and there's something there with Gooch as well. And maybe the fact that that Cook front loaded his career, a bit different for Gooch. He you know had those long spells away from the England team. We mentioned South Africa a number of times, form slumps as well, dropped a number of times. That he still had gas in the tank for that push in his mid to late. 30s and early 40s, maybe for Cook, who he threw thousands and thousands of balls to when he was the England batting coach, he might keep doing it in his mentor's image until he's 45 or something like that and make mm. 100 hundreds. Yeah, 
he could he could go on and then he could become the Essex batting coach and he could stick around here for another couple of decades because you know that's what Graham Gooch did. So he played he played an MCC sort of uh, you know circus game basically, but one that still had first class status in two thousand. That wow. was his last first class match. So he pl- he played from seventy three to two thousand. That's his span of first class cricket. He probably fits into that. I mean, I know a lot of people like doing it when we work on the Guardian live blog for how quickly you can get from. Uh, Hambledon in 17, what was it? It was 250 years ago this year. Is it 1782? 1772. Mm-hmm. How many players do they need to link up to get to the modern day? Now, Jimmy Anderson's part of that, mm-hmm. that chain, because, of course, he, he played his first professional game in about 2001, but he won't quite cross over with Gooch. It's probably no. Alex Stewart links those two, and, mm-hmm. and on we go. But, yeah, Gooch might be part of the chain. If you go back to 73, think of some of the players that Gooch would have played with who've been around since you know, pretty much the war. Mm. I mean, there'll, there'll be some... Brian Close, maybe? Brian Close was always involved. If there, yeah. were, if there was a, a dodgy first-class fixture that <laughs> didn't deserve first-class status, it was always the DB Close DB, 11. I think there were DB Close 11s up until the mid-80s, so he certainly would have played against him. But there'll be others as well who, who are around from the 40s that Gooch played against and Maybe not quite anyone left who played against Gooch in 2000. Although, if there is someone, maybe send it through as a nerd pledge. Final word, uh, Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash the final word. Maybe you can fashion a nerd pledge out of something in relation to Graham Gooch if you like what we do on the show. The reason we can do things like this, Jeff, is because Patreon has been so big for us over the last few years and we're ever so grateful to everybody who, who sends in a pledge and not only helps us build a history show each week but enables you and I to travel around the, the country and indeed the world uh, making these kinds of interviews. That is exactly it. It wouldn't wouldn't be happening if not for you. So everybody on the patron, thank you very much. Uh, this has been a long, long interview, a long show. I think we should bring it to a gentle close here at Chelmsford. Yes, let's do that. Uh, thank you to Bad Producer Productions, to Dave Collins, our editor. I've already thanked everyone on our Patreon page and everybody for listening. And again, thanks to Advanced Hair Studios, the world leaders in hair restoration, for making this conversation with Graham Gooch possible. Hope you enjoyed it. Till next time. Bye-bye. I had to go about it.